Hi everyone, I'm Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Larkin Sherry, Chief Scientific Officer at Oracle Bio, and Dr. Aditya Pratapa, Senior Data Scientist at Akoya Biosciences. Dr. Sherry and Dr. Pratapa recently joined us for a webinar where they present a new workflow for analyzing multiplex immunofluorescence images. Let's jump right in. So let's jump in with a question here uh, for Addy. So is the unmixed QP-TIFF file also normalized to account for exposure times during the acquisition? Yeah, the, the short answer is yes. Um, that information on normalization is part of the QPTF metadata XML file. Um, so unlike the previous version where the unmixed file was stored as a 32-bit float, now the data is stored as a 16-bit integer, and you can read in this normalization factor uh, from the metadata. And uh, software like Visio Farm already all support this natively, uh, but but yeah, you could always, you know, add on that feature um, depending on your use case. Excellent. Yeah, great to hear. Um, and Lorgan, here one for you. Uh, so, where do you see AI continuing to impact the multiplex IF image analysis workflow? Yeah. Um, can you hear me okay, Liam? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great. Sounds great. Great. So um, in my presentation, I demonstrated the use of AI in the sort of cell segmentation process and also the tissue segmentation process. And certainly in that area, we've seen some great improvements in how we are segmenting tissues and cells in, 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 in the step before the thresholding. Um, I think if we look at the early part of the workflow at the image QC part, certainly at the moment, that's traditionally done by manual review, uh, visual review, and that can be quite time consuming. It can also be subjective. And I think uh, there's a number of companies out there, including ourselves, are looking at how we can maybe use AI to train algorithms to recognize certain features around out of focus, um, staining variants, tissue artifacts, and, and trying to automate that process so that uh, it makes it more efficient uh, in, in that part of the workflow. Um, I think also when we look at the area of, say, thresholding or choosing a threshold for positive staining or positive cells versus negative cells for each of the markers in a panel, um, traditionally, again, that's done th through a manual method where maybe a global threshold is, is, is used uh, across the whole image set. Um, and that can lead to challenges. Sometimes there are maybe some staining variances between different sections or even in different channels. Um, when you multiply that across you know, four or five, six channels in an image, you can have a lot, you can maybe have uh, some amendments to those types of thresholds being set. And I think here there's uh, certainly an opportunity for AI to be incorporated in to support some adaptive thresholding so that the AI is trained to recognize how uh, maybe positive staining looks maybe in a, in a low exposure background uh, or maybe in a high exposure background, what is positive staining? cannot be detected. And also in areas where there's maybe non-specific staining or things like that. So moving away from maybe global thresholds to using adaptive thresholds uh, supported by augmented AI is, is certainly something I think is going to improve the efficiency of these in the R&D setting. But certainly as we move into things like companion diagnostics and how we use this in maybe a clinical or healthcare workflow, 
Um, certainly, uh, AI and supporting that adaptive nature um, is something I think will will make that a meaningful process uh, in, in that setting. Yeah, great answer. It feels like it uh, highlights some of the great advantages of AI, especially for image analysis. It's uh, really powerful thing that you can do with it. Um, all right, so is, is imaging for phenocode signature assays any different in terms of the unmixing and autofluorescence removal? Eddie, I think this one is for you. Yeah, um, so the, we pro the, the guidance remains the same uh, in terms of creating the unmixing library, both for the opal assays and the phenocode signature assay. Um, so, but we, the official recommendation is that you create a phenocode signature specific library um, and for the for the tissue type that you're working with, um, you know, j just to be, because that can change from tissue to tissue. Excellent. Um, a few questions about validation here. Um, so, Lurkin, can you validate the algorithms that you develop, and also uh, what level of validations do the panels have? And and you mentioned clinical trials just now. How are they used in uh, clinical trials, if at all yet? Yeah, I can I can start there. Um, certainly, we can validate the algorithms. A bit a bit more complex to validate uh, multiplex fluorescent algorithms compared to maybe uh, bright field chromogenic uh, algorithms that have been developed for bright field chromogenic images. But we normally take a, a sort of a dual approach to to the algorithm development. Firstly, we think of the tissue classifier algorithm, the one that is segmenting the tissue into different regions of interest. So if that was uh, uh, tumor or oncology tissue, it'd be tumor stroma regions of interest. And we will um, validate that using a dice coefficient approach where we create um, field of view uh, boxes on a set of validation images after the algorithm has been trained. Um, our pathologists will be involved in this process where pathologists will go in and manually annotate areas that they see as tumor and stroma within these fields of view. And then the algorithm is, uh, is applied to the field of views uh, independently to create its own data. And then there's a comparison of that data using the dice coefficient to see how well the pathologist or the ground truth data aligns with the performance of the app. Um, for cell analysis, um, again, as I mentioned, this is a little bit trickier. We got not just one set of maybe readouts per marker, but we may in a multiplex environment of five, 10, or even more. Uh, so every channel or every marker needs to be validated independently on its own accord. Um, here, again, we will apply field of view boxes to a set of validation images. Uh, we will go in pathology-assisted, uh, pathologist-assisted pathologist uh, reads of those uh, boxes to count the numbers of positive negative cells for each of the marker channels. And then the algorithm will be applied directly to those boxes and uh, the data generated. And here we would perform uh, correlation analysis to compare the readouts of the algorithm directly with the, the readouts of, of, of the manual review. So yeah, certainly um, um, the algorithms can be validated in that format. Um, and I think, um, I don't know, Adi, if you want to talk a little bit about how they're, how they're being sort of validated from an ASI perspective. Yeah, um, yeah to, to add to that, the, 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 the validation data for the phenocode signature panels is provided as part of the data sheets. Um, and you can always reach out to our technical sales teams uh, to, if you need more information on how that, um, how the panel validations performed on that end. Fantastic. Um, all right, Addy, does steric hindrance of the barcoded antibodies affect the multiplex, uh, the multiplex phenocode signature assays? 
Yeah, so again, this is uh, something that we included as part of our validation during the development process where we tested that the both the single stain antibodies uh, and also in the multiplex setting, you see the same staining and uh, specificity. Um, and yeah, this is part of the validation that's done to, to test specifically for state hindrance. Excellent. Um, and I think this one uh, will be for you, Lorcan. How long did it take for you to establish your cloud infrastructure? Yeah, that, yeah, I talked a little bit about this in the presentation. It was certainly um, something that we started about four or five years ago and has been a sort of a constant development. Um, um, we, we pretty much started with, due to the need to uh, think about image storage. Uh, multiplex IF images are quite large image files. So trying to store those locally on, on, a, on, a, on a hard drive, on, on a sort of a infrastructure internally on site was, was becoming more challenging. So that was one of the reasons we moved to the cloud to get that sort of scalable storage. Um, but then we needed more connectivity about how our clients send us images. So again, thinking about how these images are transferred across sites and between geographical regions and so forth. Uh, we set up AWS buckets, which was another sort of uh, benefit of moving to the cloud. Um, thirdly, we, we also needed scalable access to GPUs and CPUs. A lot of the, well, the deep learning neural networks that we, we use run on GPUs. Um, there may be certain studies where we will be analyzing maybe a couple of hundred images and some of these images may take a number of hours to, to analyze. So we wanted to get parallel access to numbers of GPUs uh, through our Visio Farm software. We can we can um, uh, we can analyze as many images in parallel as we wish. Uh, so yeah, uh, access to those GPUs and CPUs in the cloud and being able to switch them on and off when needed from a cost perspective was a real benefit. Um, and then finally, we also needed a way of our staff to be able to access the software both from a hybrid environment from at home or from in the office space. So being able to log into a portal and access that not necessarily be physically on site all the time was important as well. So um, a lot of that was brought together in a build over time. We we didn't have all the IT expertise internally in the company. We we worked with one of our sister companies, Ciento Technology, who, who specialize in this. Um, and certainly it's it's the backbone of how we operate now. And um, for, for a CRO, it, it's, it's, yes, it's about creating uh, quality data, accurate data, but it's also about creating that efficiently. And certainly uh, uh, our cloud infrastructure has allowed us to do that. Excellent. Um, all right, uh, this person says that they use uh, PhenoCycler Codex antibodies. Uh, Adi, can these be used with the PhenoCode panels? Uh, the, the short answer is no. Um, each antibody that we offer via the PhenoCode signature assay has been tested specifically for use in that assay. Uh, so you, yeah, no, you cannot use the codex antibodies in the PhenoCode signature panels. All right, all right. Um, all right, question here is a bit long, so you know, bear with me, but uh, it says, great presentations, thank you. My question is, uh, what would be the way for controlling the phenotype and correctness across consecutive sections with partially overlapping staining panels? So when cell densities don't correlate between slides, uh, but the visual, but visually phenotyping looks okay on both of them, do you need a ground truth in such a case? And if yes, um, in a data set of 100 slides, should it be calculated for each slides and for each marker? Um, do you have any recommendations for this kind of case? 
Yeah, I, yeah, I think um, when we're talking about serial sections and the data from section to section will, will not always be be identical. We're, there's a distance between the sections and the, and the cell profile does change slightly. Um, I think to gain confidence, um, I touched upon you know the validation process, and I think that's maybe where you really try and build your your confidence in the performance of the apps where you're you know you're you're choosing your field of views on a validation set of images and you're doing a manual counting with pathologist pathologist interaction and assistance and comparing that to the performance of the algorithm and i think you know that's uh, that's an important step you know if you if you're really wanting to ensure confidence in how those apps are going to perform moving forward um, so yeah, I would say trying to build in the validation, uh, you know, prior to sort of execution of your actual work samples is 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 an important step. Excellent. Yeah, great answer. Um, another one for you, Lorcan. Do you have an approach for discovering new biomarkers? And uh, maybe you could reveal a bit on this topic. You know, like types and examples, or um, any trends ongoing. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Um, a lot of the, as a CRO, a lot of the work that we do for our clients, um, especially with the Akoya panels, it will be based in the translational area where R&D space, where certainly, you know, those clients are looking for interesting biomarker profiles in particular disease samples and so forth. So they will use the panels and then we will analyze those, uh, that staining profile with the algorithms we develop and we'll generate a whole set of data um, and it will be dependent on the tissues that, that, the, that the staining and the analysis has been applied to and uh, the questions and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the therapeutic areas that those samples are aligned with. Um, certainly, there's a lot of data that can be generated from samples uh, from individual cell population counts, uh, immune cells, macrophages, tumor cells. Um, you can look for phenotypes of those types of cells. So you can look at different subsets of T cells. You can look at activation status. And again, the Akoya panels are very much set up for this. Um, we we generate that data. Uh, we generate all all the sort of the, the raw data. We can summarize that data and, and and look for different sort of profiles. As I mentioned, there are some spatial interactions as well that is is is, is something that. Um, you can do at a cell-to-cell -cell level, but now it's been expanded into more neighborhood analysis and so forth, and definitely more sort of IT-intensive bioinformatic processes to look for unsupervised review of that data, uh, as well as um, you know hypothesis-driven. So um, a lot of the clinical trials we will work on have their specific questions already, and we will look for for data to support that, um, but other questions, you know, at the translational level, will be biomarker uh, development and biomarker identification driven. And again, we can provide all the data there and send that back to our clients, uh, as well as being able to perform the types of readouts that I talked about. Excellent, um, Addy, you still there? I uh, just want to make sure that you can still hear us. It looks like your camera dropped out for a sec. Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. Uh, can you hear okay. me? Okay, fantastic. Yeah, all good. Um, all right, I think in the interest of time, we'll just have one last question, maybe a, a question looking forward to the future. Um, are there any upcoming developments um, in both your, your services or maybe uh, trends, research avenues that are emerging that you're really looking forward to? Um, and so, Addy, maybe we'll start with you and then we can move to Lurkin. Yeah, um, I, I think in, in terms of trends, it's the 
the data generation part of it, uh, I think, is 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 kind of there. Uh, we can now generate hundreds and thousands of slides in a matter of weeks. Um, and you know, to, to me, how how we can take advantage of all of these uh, just like that sort of data that's out there in order to you know come up with new ways of analyzing uh, and also you know in, in terms of how they can be applied in a clinical setting is is what excites me the most. Yeah. Yeah. Great answer. And what about you, Lorcan? Yeah, I think um, you know the area of multiplex IF has really allowed us to much better and profile the biology, the underlying biology of disease processes and and therapeutic responses. You know, when when we when I was Ten, if I go back 10 years ago, we were dealing with single chromogenic stains and single cell populations and trying to determine, um, you know, uh, mechanistic responses and biomarkers uh, around a sort of a single cell count readout. You know, now, now we're able to look at all the different sort of phenotypic profiles in, in cancers. And this is especially important in immunotherapy, which is one of the key sort of areas for 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 cancer therapy therapeutics at the moment so um certainly multiplex if has allowed us to generate more data but certainly the spatial component and Addy touched upon this in his uh, as well as myself not just the cell counts not just how many cells are present in a tissue but where are they present and how are they interacting uh, with each other it is now becoming not just a, a, a an interest from a, a research and scientific perspective but also from uh, a companion diagnostic and a healthcare perspective, can we start to use data to spatial data and contextual data of cells on tissue sections to identify which patients will or will not respond to a certain therapy? And I think that's a really key area moving forward for us uh, in this field. And there, there's a lot of validation there to be done. There's a lot of standardization in the process from uh, the staining, the imaging, the analysis, the use of algorithms and the data generation. Uh, but certainly the depth of data uh, and the different types of data that we're now able to extract from these, you know, uh, very precious tissue samples is, is allowing us to think this way. And I do see over the next, you know, five years or so, you know, great strides moving towards how we can maybe use this type of technology to the, to the benefit of patients. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.